Turn, if you would, to the 14th chapter of the book of Mark. Believe it or not, we are getting closer to the end of Mark. <laughs> I know you thought we'd never end. And it's the shorter gospel. I think when I taught John, when I got about uh, to lesson number 60, some very nice lady in the class suggested to me that it might be good to finish it. <laughs> so I did. <laughs> I think at lesson 70. Two weeks ago in our lesson, Jesus was arrested. Remember, he had been in Jerusalem for the Passover week. He had been cleansing the temple. He had been uh, preaching, teaching. Every day he would spend the day in Jerusalem, and then he'd leave town and would spend the night outside of town. So he was going back and forth. And he did the Last Supper with his disciples. It was the Passover and the transition to the new covenant, as he said, which was his blood to be shed for them. And then he goes to the garden and he prays. He has this magnificent prayer that basically says, God, I don't want to do this, but whatever your will is, that's what I'm going to do. So he was arrested, and in last week's lesson, he was brought before the Jewish officials. In theory, this is the trial. Now, it kind of violates the rules of having a trial when you do it in the middle of the night at the high priest's house so that you don't have to worry about the crowd rising up to come to his rescue. So they try him, and they try to find two witnesses that will tell the same story against him, and they have trouble doing this. And finally, they just ask him, are you the Christ? Are you the Messiah? And he said, yes. Well, that was blasphemy. And that was most of our lesson last week, that either it was blasphemy or he is, in fact, the Messiah. So they are going to hand him over to the Roman officials. Remember, the Romans occupied the land. The Romans gave the people a certain amount of latitude in handling civil issues. But they did not allow the Jews to execute someone. So they've got to go to the Romans to get them to actually carry out the execution. And we had a brief discussion about the fact that this was done actually to fulfill prophecy. Because if he had been killed by the Jews, he would not have been crucified. He would not have been hung on a tree as was spoken in the Old Testament about what would happen to the Messiah. Now, while this trial has been going on, Peter has snuck into the courtyard to watch what's happening. If you read the version of this in Matthew, it actually does a better job of showing that these things are going like this. The trial is going on. Peter denies that he knows Jesus. More of the trial, Peter denies. In the Mark passage, they kind of break these up and say, okay, here's what was happening with Jesus, and here's what was happening with Peter. But just remember that this isn't 
one denial, five seconds later, the next one, five seconds later, the next one. This is going on while what we talked about last week is taking place. So let's pick it up in verse 66. And Peter was below in the courtyard. One of the servant girls of the high priest came. And seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at and said, You were with the Nazarene Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the uh, the gateway, and the rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him and began again to say to the bystanders, This man is one of them. But again he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, Certainly you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. But he began to evoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man whom you speak. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time, and Peter remembered how Jesus said to him, Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. Now, Jesus had told Peter what Peter was going to do. And Peter, and then all the disciples said, no way. No way I'm ever going to deny you. And the rest of the disciples said, no way are we going to run away. When the going gets tough, we're going to be here to be with you. And remember, we had this discussion before because I find it fascinating. Jesus told them, when everything is over, come find me. I'll be waiting in Galilee. What Jesus was telling them is I know what's going to happen. Don't worry about it. When it's all over, come find me. Because I don't know about you, if I had been following Jesus for three years, I mean, we were best buds at this point. I mean, we had been living together, traveling together, eating together, seeing the miraculous things happen. If I had then denied him, I'm not sure I would have, I mean, I probably would have been too embarrassed to come back. But Jesus tells them to come back. Now, what is Peter doing? Well, I've got to give Peter at least a little bit of credit All the disciples fled, but Peter at least wanted to know what was going on. So inside Caiaphas' house, they're having this mock trial. And Peter sneaks into the courtyard, and you can imagine there were a large number of people in the courtyard. You know, there's a big thing going on in the middle of the night, and there are, as this story says, servants out there. I can imagine that there are people that came with the Sanhedrin who are conducting the mock trial. And they're in there, and Peter's out there just watching what's going on. And this servant girl, this nobody in the power structure, this person who has no authority over him, comes up to him and says, I know you. You're with that guy. What would you have said? What would you have said if some servant girl walked up to you and said, I know you, you're a Christian? Well, they wouldn't have used that word. 
yet. That's going to come later. You're one of those guys. You're one of those people who were following the Galilean. They didn't even know what to call him at this point. They certainly weren't going to call him the Christ. Okay? That's what's being argued inside with the bigwigs. What would you have said to the servant girl? Well, we know what Peter said. Heck no. I don't know what you're talking about. I don't know who this person is. To which the follow-up question would have been, then what are you doing here? Who are you? But let's let that slide for a while. A little more time passes. They're still arguing. Jesus, I mean, uh, Peter's trying to get an idea of what's going on inside. And the servant girl comes back and says, I know I know you. You, you talk different. You've got a different accent. You're definitely a Galilean. He said, no, I don't even have a clue. And finally, she says to all of the people around, this guy is one of them. And he says, and I'm not going to give any profanity, but basically he says, you know, a curse on me if I'm not telling the truth. He's not cursing them. He is swearing by anything that he doesn't know who Jesus is. Remember, we had this discussion a couple of weeks ago. We are supposed to believe, according to much uh, secular history, whatever, that Jesus died and his disciples got together to figure out how to create this religion called Christianity, even though they knew Jesus had died and was dead and didn't come back. The disciples knew that, yet they were gutsy and bold and wanted to start this. No, they're denying to a servant girl that they know who Jesus is. There isn't any bold, this was a great teacher, we should follow him, him, come with me, come on servant girls, let's have a discussion about what Jesus taught. No! He was terrified of anybody. Once again, let's work our way down to the lowest social power stratus of the society. You know, Jesus is dealing with Caiaphas, in the lesson in just a moment, he's going to be dealing with Pilate. Peter is dealing with the servant girl, and he can't take the pressure. Why? Because he's scared. Because he's figured it's all over. He doesn't know what's going to happen. He's confused. But you know... You go from here to the book of Acts and Peter is going to stand before crowds and tell who Jesus is. Why is he going to do that? Number one, because Jesus didn't stay in the grave. And number two, he went back to Jesus. And Jesus said, Okay, 
Now, there was a more discussion. We might get to this later. You know, Peter, do you love me? Yeah, I do. Uh-huh, yeah. Are you sure you love me? Yeah, I'm sure. Are you sure you're sure you love me? Yes, I am. Good. Go take care of the sheep. But that comes later. Right now, it's just Peter in a courtyard in the middle of the night, scared to death that anybody would recognize him. Now, in one sense, this is going to let you off the hook. Why? Because God knows you're going to sin. He does. It doesn't shock him. It doesn't surprise him. We can argue that it grieves him. But it doesn't shock him. But if you're going to be like Judas and sin and fall into despair, there's no hope. But if you're going to be like Peter and sin, let's make no question about this. Peter is sinning right here. He is denying God and bringing some curses down on himself while he does it. But he goes to Jesus. He is forgiven. So in one sense, this is demonstrating to us that there is forgiveness. Whatever it is we've done, there is forgiveness. But the other thing that we need to remember is we are on this side of the resurrection. Peter's a different person on this side of the resurrection. He's not cowering to slave girls. He's not cowering to kings on that side of the resurrection. So we'll cut him a little slack on this side. But on the other side, he is and does ready to die for Jesus. So it's an interesting episode. It's an interesting episode because it demonstrates a lot about Peter's character. Remember, all through the book, all through the book, he's the one that makes the very brash statements. Oh, I'm going to do whatever. I'm going to follow you to the end. No, Jesus, you can't do that. But Jesus understood Peter better than Peter understood Peter. So, continuing on into chapter 15. And as soon as it was morning, the chief priest held a consultation with the elders and the scribes and the whole council. That would have been the Sanhedrin. Okay? Now, it's okay for the Jews to have a trial in the middle of the night. But you're not going to wake up Pilate in the middle of the night to have a trial. Let's just say that, okay? So they do wait for the morning before they take the next step. And they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked to Jesus, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. And the chief priest accused him of many things, and Pilate again asked him, Have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer, so that Pilate was amazed. Now, we need to 
change our thinking here just a little bit. A world of difference has changed from a Jewish trial to a Roman trial. Yes, sir. Sure. Okay. No. <laughs> the, the question is, is denying Jesus an unforgivable sin? Well, if we believe that, then Peter's toast at this point. That's observation number one. Uh, I believe that Jesus tells us that there's only one unforgivable sin, and that is the rejection of the Holy Spirit. Okay, The Holy Spirit comes to you at different points in your life and says, you need Jesus. And you say, no, not today. And the Holy Spirit comes to you and says, you need Jesus. And, he, and you say, no, nah, not today. If you ultimately reject the movement of the Holy Spirit in your life, there is no plan B for salvation. Jesus said, you can say anything you want to about me. But the moment that you, well, if you ultimately reject the movement of the Holy Spirit in your life, there is no plan B. Now, is it serious to reject Jesus? The answer to that is yes. And even in church history, the answer to that was yes, it is serious. Um, the rejection of Jesus was considered, in Catholic the theology at least, a mortal sin. Okay. In fact, it's interesting. We've kind of talked about this before, and since you wanted to digress, we'll do that. Um, the church starts being formed and begins to suffer persecution. That persecution first comes from the Jews, and later that persecution comes from the Romans. And we love to read the stories of the people who stood up for Christ in the midst of persecution, and died for their faith. And that is what we refer to as martyrs. They are witnesses. Less often, though, do we want to talk about the people who, when the torture came, said, ah, no, I don't know who he is. And they rejected the faith. Okay? So, here you are, and John has died a martyr's death, and Bob said, eh, the torture's a little too much, I'll deny Jesus, and they let him go. So, next year, I'm making up a number, next year, the persecution kind of dies down. John has died, he's a hero to the faith, Bob rejected Jesus. Bob wants back in the church. And the early church had a, and when I say early, the first 300 years, the early church had a great debate about whether to let Bob back in the church. The fins of John are saying, no, John died for the faith, Bob didn't, Bob rejected it, and eh, he's out. And a lot of this whole idea of doing penance and all of that was brought about trying to figure out how to get Bob back into the church. Okay? Because John was a saint, 
Bob, eh. And so they actually struggled with that. And the answer finally was, and rightfully so, was yes, Bob can be brought back into the church. Okay? Now, remember once again, the scriptures also, well, the early church teachings are also very clear that if you know the persecution is coming, you don't have to stand around and wait for it. If I know the Roman soldiers are coming in that door, it is perfectly okay for me to run out that door. That's fine. Now, if the Romans grab me and say, deny Christ, at that point, I've got to confess that I do believe in Jesus Christ. But running away is fine. They actually had a problem in the early church since in our fictional thing here, John was being elevated as a martyr, a lot of people wanted to be martyrs. And they'd go up to the Roman soldier and say, here I am, take me. No, the church said, don't do that. So anyway, no, the rejection of Jesus is not an unforgivable sin. It is a sin. Okay, and it, yeah. So anyway. Paul, well, Peter, in this case, is even better. Paul was at least a non-believer, and then he became a Christian, and then, so, yeah, he was living a wretched life, but, well, he wasn't living a wretched life. He was living a nice Pharisee life. Yeah, but not Christ. Anyway, we are transitioning from a Jewish trial to a Roman trial. Remember, the Romans are interested in different things. The discussion we have right here in the book of Mark is the shortest version of this trial. We began the whole book, remember, with this discussion about the fact that I'm going to fight my inclination to jump over to the book of Matthew and get the longer version of it. I tell you that because in just a moment, I'm going to jump over to the book of Matthew <laughs> to have a discussion. But that's in just a moment. The Romans are interested in power. They don't give a flip about Jewish theology. They don't give a flip about who is messing with whom in the Jewish hierarchy. They don't care. Pilate had a job to do. It was to maintain order, and it was to collect the taxes. And as long as he could do that without the people revolting, Caesar was going to say, good job, Pilate. That's why in one of the other accounts of this trial, and it is covered in all four of the Gospels, in one of the other accounts, they finally tell Pilate, well, if you let him go, you're not a friend of Caesar's which would have been a great insult to him. You're saying, I'm not part of the inner circle. And Pilate, and Pilate does not care about Jesus as a person. All he wants to know is, are you a threat to the Roman Empire? And he looks at Jesus and he says, are you the king of the Jews? Why? King means Different power structure. King means threat to the Roman Empire. King means I've got to do something about you. And trust me, he's not afraid to do something about him. 
Are you the king of the Jews? Now, once again, in the other accounts, there's more discussion. My kingdom is not of this world. And at some point, Pilate gets this idea, you know what? This guy is harmless. Now, just to let you know, Jesus is anything but harmless. But as a military, political threat to the Roman Empire, Pilate comes to the conclusion this guy is harmless. Are you the king of the Jews? And all Jesus says is, you have said that. Now, what is Pilate to do? Well, he sits there, and here are these Jewish officials blasting Jesus. Blasting Jesus, saying, he's done these horrible things, he's a wretched person, he deserves to die. And Pilate sits there looking at Jesus and says, aren't you even going to answer their accusations? Aren't you even going to deny them? Aren't you going to fight for your life? Aren't you going to stand up against the people that are accusing you? And Jesus just stood there. And it says that Pilate was amazed. Huh. Kind of amazed. Amazed? I know, but amazed that he didn't answer. Yeah, that he wasn't fighting back. Pilate can sit here and snap his fingers, and Jesus is dead. I mean, Jesus' life is in Pilate's hands, as far as Pilate is concerned. Any normal person would have been pleading for his life. Please, Pilate, save me from these religious fanatics who are trying to kill me. But remember, Jesus knows what he's doing. He knows where he's going. And he knows why all of this is happening. So no, he's not going to argue with them, even though they're wrong. Now at the feast, he released, he, Pilate, used to release for them one prisoner for whom they ask. Um, If you're into such things, there are people who wonder whether this actually ever occurred. I'm going to say it occurred because it's in the Bible. But there actually is indication in other historical writings that this was a thing that did happen. Okay? At the feast, he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they ask. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection was a man by the name of Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them, saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived, he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priest had delivered him up. Pilate is hoping the people will say, Yeah, let Jesus go. We like Jesus, let him go. Because he figured out that it was really just the leadership that was pursuing Jesus. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have him released for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, 
then what will I do with this man you call king of the Jews? And they cried out again, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. Pilate thought he could get Jesus off. All I've got to do is appeal to the people. But the Jewish leadership, the Jewish leadership had stirred up the people that were there. And you can understand how they could do that, right? Are you a good Jew? I'm the Jewish leadership. You do what I say or you're in trouble. So the people said, give us Barabbas instead. And Pilate said, why? You get the obvious sense that he is a little bit befuddled by all of this. But you know what? He doesn't care about Jesus. Jesus is a nobody to him. And so he gives them Barabbas. And you'd love to think that something good happened to Barabbas because of all this. We don't know any of that, okay? He then had Jesus whipped. I kind of get the impression that if he sits there and publicly, he thinks if he sits there and publicly whips Jesus for a while, the people will be satisfied and they'll let him go. Obviously, that's not going to happen. And it says he is delivered to be crucified. I told you I was going to skip over to Matthew just for one instance in this discussion. And the only reason I'm really doing this is because what happened in my world, no, my American history class this week. You know, right, that I teach American history and world history to high school students. Lots of fun. And in our American history class, we are in uh, the 30s. We covered the Depression. Uh, and we talked about different things going over in, on in the country. And there was just this passing phrase about anti-Jewish, anti-Semitic rhetoric on the radio. Remember, the Ku Klux Klan didn't hate just blacks. They also didn't think much of Jews or immigrants to begin with. And one of the students asked me, why do people hate the Jews so much? Why throughout all of history do the Jews get picked on so much? And I told them, well, obviously, because they killed Jesus. What? I mean, that was my intent, right? Look over in the, uh, the book of Matthew. to verse 24, uh, 27, excuse me, 27, verse 24. But when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people answered, his blood be on us and our children. Throughout much of medieval history and early church history, there is this idea that the Jews accepted responsibility for the death of Jesus. 
that it is their fault. Therefore, they can be treated any way you want because they killed Jesus. Now, in actual fact, as I explained to the class, there are three basic reasons why the Jews have suffered throughout history. One is this. Number two has to do with money. Remember, for most of uh, the medieval period, Christians were not allowed to loan money to people at interest. But the Jews could. So the Jews became the bankers, and the Jews would loan the king of England a bazillion dollars, and the king of England would decide he doesn't want to pay back the bazillion dollars, so he would simply run all the Jews out of England. That actually happened. And number three is the Jews are the perpetual outsider. I mean, if you're living in the middle of a Christian society, the Jews are the outsider. And for these three reasons, Jews have been persecuted through much of European history. And in fact, there are times in the medieval period where the Jews actually prospered better living in Muslim countries than they did in Christian countries. But, but, the reason that I thought this was interesting, explaining it to my high school students, is because it gave me an opportunity to share the gospel with them. Remember what I said I was going to tell you every week? I told you last week, I told you the week before, and I told you the week before. There ain't nobody killing Jesus that Jesus couldn't stop. When they came to get Jesus, Jesus says, put the sword away. If I wanted to, I could snap my fingers, 12 legions of angels would show up, and this would all be over. The Jews did not kill Jesus. We could argue about whether the Romans killed Jesus, but they're not around in any form or fashion that we speak of today. What killed Jesus was your sin and my sin and Jesus voluntarily going to the cross to pay the penalty of that sin. And this is what I explained to my high school students. Anti-Semitism in all forms or fashion is abhorrent. Jesus was a Jew. Now, I pointed out to my class, there are people who say that he wasn't a Jew. Somehow he had slipped into the Middle East, but he wasn't really a Jew. No, that's hogwash. The disciples were all Jews. The earliest Christians were Jews. And then they started breaking out to the Gentile world. To blame any ethnic group for what Jesus was doing to accomplish salvation for us is misunderstanding the whole situation. Every step of Jesus' life was done to provide salvation for you and me. The only reason Jesus needed to go to the cross was not because the Jews snuck up on him. It wasn't because the Romans happened to have captured Palestine and just wanted to kill him. The reason Jesus died was to pay the penalty for our sins. And, and, he accomplished that purpose. 
So remember that, because in the next lesson, I think the next lesson, we're actually going to get to the crucifixion. But remember, he's being crucified for you and for me, not because some wacko Jewish high priest decided it should happen, but because God, before the foundation of the world, loved us. And that's why he did it. So, what do we learn from Pilate from all of this? Pilate was doing what he needed to do to maintain order. He didn't care. He was a pragmatist. Whatever it takes, I'm going to do that. He never repents. What do we learn about Peter? Peter was a pragmatist for a while here. What was he interested in doing? Saving his life. He was in a situation where he was being threatened because of his association with Jesus, and he said, eh, nope, don't know who he is. The difference was Peter saw the risen Lord. And when Peter saw the risen Lord, keeping his own skin alive became the least of his problems. Peter is going to change the world. Peter, the apostles, the teachings of the apostles, is going to change the world because they saw the risen Lord and they know the risen Lord died to pay the penalty for your sins and mine. Don't you know that throughout Peter's life after this, that people would come up to him and say, but, 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 you denied Jesus. And Peter would look them in the eye and say, yeah, and his grace is bigger than that. Let's close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for dying for our sins. I pray, Lord, that we would be like Peter after the resurrection. But Lord, thank you that you give us forgiveness for our sins, like you forgave Peter. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.